From Advisory Board, we're bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. Today, we're speaking with Advisory Board's resident technology and telehealth expert, my friend, John League. John, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and what you do at Advisory Board? Thanks, Ray. I lead research into healthcare technology for global provider organizations. That means we cover, well, we cover a whole lot of stuff. We cover analytics, we cover artificial intelligence, electronic medical records, digital strategy, and telehealth, which is a little um, a little interesting nowadays. <laughs> That's right. And I'm not sure how both of us happened to get on this email chain, probably because you actually work with tech and telehealth, and perhaps just because I'm really interested in it. But you and I were both forwarded the same tweet the other day. It was this image, a screenshot that one of our colleagues took, and it was of a multiple choice question that said something like, who led transformation at your company? And option A is the CEO, option B is the CTO or chief transformation officer, and option C is COVID-19. And it's meant to be this joke, but it also makes this very clear point about just how much change or potential change is in store for health systems in a post-pandemic world. Oh, that's absolutely true. And the impact could be, could be <laughs> staggering. Um, but there's a lot to get us from here to there. So I'm glad that we can talk about it today. All right, John, so before we dive in and talk about telehealth's impact on the pre and post COVID world, let's just do a moment to ground ourselves in what the heck we actually mean when we're talking about telehealth. How do you define that term for the industry? Sure. When we talk about telehealth, what we mean is the interactive electronic exchange of information. You'll see this called telehealth. You'll see it called telemedicine or virtual care. They all mean the same thing, and they're all used for the same purposes. Diagnosis, intervention, ongoing care management. The thing that they all have in common is that the patient or the providers are remote. And there are really three flavors of this. They're often referred to as modalities, if you want to be very uh, <laughs> precious about it. But basically, there are three ways that telehealth happens. The first one, real-time interactions between providers and patients, or between providers and providers. This is what we think of when we think of uh, video visits, mm -hmm. either on a smartphone or some sort of telehealth cart inside a clinic or hospital. One of the other modalities, remote patient monitoring. So wearables like an Apple Watch or an implanted device, like some sort of cardiac device, that kind of thing. It really anything that can provide patient data back to a provider remotely. And then finally, there's this other category, asynchronous is the term which basically just means there's a time lag between the interaction. So think of secure messaging, uh, think of second opinion consults, things like that. Got it. So take me back to a world before the pandemic actually happened. How were most organizations using telehealth in any of these different flavors in their organizations? 
It's incredibly varied and usually not all that well centralized. A Hmm. lot of it is siloed. It usually lives in a single service line or with a single provider organization within a system. And there are really two ways that providers have focused on this. The first is provider to provider, usually is a way to expand access to specialists, often in sort of a, a hub and spoke kind of model. The other way is real-time virtual interactions between patient and provider. And arguably, health systems have focused way too much on this this second kind. But this is basically just a way to replace an urgent care visit or, uh, or primary care checkup. So I think I have the flu. I think I have a UTI. What I really need is just to talk to a provider and get a prescription and move on with my day. Got it. One of the sort of interesting variations on this that we've seen from some more advanced organizations, both providers and what we would call disruptors, so folks who are providing healthcare but aren't necessarily affiliated with uh, a provider organization, um, they're using a, a chat feature, some sort of chat that's built into maybe an app or on their website. It's an asynchronous visit. Basically, patients take a virtual exam. It's kind of like a quiz. And running in the background is an algorithm or an artificial intelligence application that is trying to predict the appropriate diagnosis and treatment plan. And then it forwards that to the provider who will look at it. And then after confirming what was captured on the chat with the patient, they'll either approve Hmm. or revise the suggested care plan. It's an interesting way to do that. And we see chatbots taking hold a lot as a first level sort of triage especially for COVID-19. So pre-COVID, these different flavors are being used, but somewhat sporadically across organizations. Give me a quick sense of how often telehealth was being used. Is this something that was a big part of the portfolio for health systems, a medium-sized part, very little? Very, very little, Ray. Hmm. What we would say is most organizations maybe got into the hundreds of visits virtually every year. Um, that would really be the limit of it. If we see an organization with maybe a thousand virtual visits across the year, we would think that's a really good number. And keep that in mind as we talk about how that's evolved in COVID land, because that number is being blown away on an hourly basis now. So take me now to what's happening today. How is telehealth being used to combat COVID-19? Okay, so the first way is to use telehealth as a way to screen patients for COVID-19, and then you direct them to the right side of care, whether that means actually coming into the hospital or staying at home to isolate. The second way is using telehealth just to keep appointments with non-COVID patients, Hmm. um, particularly in the ambulatory space. This is the biggest difference we're seeing because of COVID-19 practices shifting regularly planned appointments to virtual channels. That might be, for example, say uh, a post-operative follow-up, maybe a recurring visit for chronic disease management, or say, you know, just an appointment with an allergist. Hmm. So I'll be honest and, and sort of reveal a little bit of my bias here. I work a lot with physician groups and frontline providers, and I'm sort of hearing that physician voice in my head and, and the very real pushback I've gotten when I talk about telehealth which is I don't really want to interact with a patient virtually, right? It's not the same thing 
looking at a patient through a screen or on a phone or through a chatbot than it would be in person. And for a lot of doctors, that's why they got into medicine, particularly with things like primary care. So I'm curious, what do you say to those physicians that are now seeing a surge in the proportion of their time that's spent delivering care through a screen? I think for a lot of physicians, it is surprising that telehealth has come online now and it is a relief for them. Hmm. Remember, physicians are one of the most vulnerable populations out there, especially physicians who are older or immunocompromised. Those folks can self-quarantine and still add to the capacity of physicians. I also think this is an opportunity to really teach providers about the real uses and limitations of telehealth. There are limits to what telehealth can do. It's never going to replace in-person care, and it certainly shouldn't. And there are limitations just in the, the regular interaction, how you use it. You can't physically examine a patient. You miss out on very important nonverbal cues that you would otherwise get when you're in the room with the person. And that's one of the knocks on telehealth. The other one, though, is, is something that you pointed to, Ray, and that's the difficulty in building a relationship or providing empathy or comfort through a virtual channel. And I'm not going to say that that is not difficult, but I had a conversation this week with a retired primary care physician in Barcelona, Spain, of all places, that sort of changed the way I thought about this. Hmm. He's doing remote visits with patients who are mildly symptomatic. They have an app in Barcelona that patients can use to check their symptoms. And one of the options, if they have mild symptoms, is to get a follow-up call from a physician within 24 hours. One thing that surprised him was how grateful the patients were for the interaction. Hmm. He's not in the room with them, but he's still able to listen. He's still able to assure them. He's still able to explain their condition and symptoms. And one of the things that was interesting He's able to ask them about their living and their social situations. How is the rest of your family doing? Is everybody getting out? Um, is anybody worse? Is anybody improved? Provides a lot of value to patients. So I think what I would say here to reluctant physicians is that a little empathy goes a long way, whatever the channel. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like physicians are getting that experience now, whether they wanted to or not, maybe a couple of months ago, and they're seeing how useful telehealth can be, even though it might be a bit of an unfamiliar platform, or they may have thought that it, it prevented them from doing some of this empathy that you're saying is, is absolutely possible through the platform. Absolutely. When we look at survey data, we find out that, you know, among among physicians, only about 25% have ever done a virtual visit. So this is sort of a national demonstration case, if you will, in the worst possible circumstances. But one of the things that's going to happen is physicians will be able to see for themselves whether or not this is an effective channel for delivering care. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you mentioned earlier that telehealth can be a real relief for physicians, particularly in vulnerable populations that might not be able to, to deliver that in-person care right now. But I think it can also be a relief for the financial impact on a lot of these practices. Tell me a little bit about how telehealth is impacting the financial situation, particularly for, say, physician groups or physician practices. Oh, for sure. And I think you had actually shared this with me, Ray. Uh, in March, the CEO of the American Academy of Family Physicians tweeted, I think, the front lines of primary care are crumbling. And, you know, if you look at the survey data, only about a third of primary care practices 
feel like they have enough cash on hand to operate for another three, four weeks. So transitioning to virtual visits is absolutely essential, not just from a care delivery perspective, but from a financial one. So many of these practices aren't seeing patients in person at all because Mm -hmm. of known exposure to COVID. Um, Their visits and revenue would disappear without telehealth. Just a couple of examples that I know of, you know, uh, ChenMed has switched 90% of their visits to telemedicine. Wow. Um, Privia, you talked to them last week. Um, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a provider group, uh, multi-specialty with about 2,500 providers. They saw their telehealth adoption jump from 20% to 100% mm. in a matter of weeks. So even though these telehealth visits, you know, are definitely probably lower revenue visits, uh, usually about 30% less in reimbursement than in-person visits. Altogether, you see a lot of practices who are seeing more visits than they would normally get. Clearly, you and I are spending a little bit too much time on Twitter, but finding some some good data and, and good connections through the platform. We'll be back in just a few moments with more from John League. If you want us to cover a topic or have feedback about this podcast, you can leave that right in our iTunes page or email us at podcasts at advisory.com. That's podcasts with an S. Okay, so that's some of the ways that more of the innovative physician groups are using telehealth. You mentioned ChenMed, Privia, right? ChenMed is typically thought of this third-party innovator. Some would even call them a disruptor. Privia is a very advanced, independent group that uh, cuts across several states. Uh, Do you really see this level of change, 90% adoption, 100% adoption? Do you see that happening in more of the status quo practices across the country? Absolutely. There was data from a weekly survey that Primary Care Collaborative is doing that answers this directly. So last week, 60% of practices reported that they weren't doing any video visits, but that number dropped to 39% in one week. So let me, let me put that another way. More than one third of physician practices who didn't have video visits last week have them this week. And that's wow. simply a remarkable change in adoption. And it's that way because it has to be. Mm-hmm. That's the only way to safely deliver care. Yeah. When I first saw that data, I was, I was a little bit shocked thinking that it was so far behind. But then you're right, just within a week, uh, a pretty immense, immense turnaround. That does mean that there are still about 40% of practices who aren't doing virtual visits. And there is a little in that related to what we were talking about a minute ago of the sort of hard core of resistance to virtual visits. If you look at Amwell's physician surveys across the past several years, you see that about 10% of physicians are always resistant to virtual care. And it's that same 10% figure across any age group. It's not just the old docs don't want to do it or that the young docs are all on board. 10% across the boards have said that they don't want to do it. I'd be interested to see that number next year and find out if that hard kernel has cracked any around resistance to this channel. You know, as somebody who works a lot with physician leaders, I'd be interested to see if that 10% number is the same across any initiative. And those are folks pushing back, not just on telehealth, but on perhaps any of the other initiatives that health systems are pushing through. <laughs> Again, maybe revealing a little bit of my bias of working with physician leaders. So we've been talking about physician groups. How about health systems? Are they also adopting some of these quick changes and and moving to telehealth like some of the physician groups have? 
honestly, it's kind of all over the place. That's <laughs> some of the largest systems, some of the most progressive ones, the, the names you would look to for innovation and being able to roll out new things quickly. Adoption is expanding rapidly. So, for example, Cleveland Clinic, they had more than 60,000 telehealth visits in March. Before March, they averaged only about 3,400 virtual visits a month. Now, 3,400 visits a month, that would represent a very robust telehealth offering pre-COVID. Even now, it's 20 times higher. Wow. And in some regional systems, we are seeing change in terms of, you know, orders of magnitude of difference. Novant Health in the Carolinas told us this week that they did about 200 virtual visits in all of 2019. Now they're doing 2,500 a day. So just to put that in perspective, they're doing more visits per hour now than they did in all of last year. There are others, though, that this just isn't happening for them. They haven't been able to set up platforms quickly enough or they don't have the infrastructure. It's really disappointing, Ray. You know, the, the concept and the technology are not new. This is something that systems and physician groups could have been investing in for a decade Mm-hmm. And many just didn't do it. And now they really need it. So so tell me if you were talking to one of those organizations, one that was maybe a little bit slow or perhaps even all out resistant to using telehealth, what should those organizations do now? I think the good news is, is that a lot of these sudden shifts to virtual visits demonstrate that you can move quickly here with the right motivation. One organization we worked with Similar to Novant, saw like 1,400 telehealth visits in 2019. In the first week of March, when you know COVID really started increasing, they were doing 1,400 visits in in just across three days. The important thing there, though, that enabled that is they got 100% of their primary care physicians trained and using the platform. I think you know to our point about physician resistance. I think that mission orientation here is is really important. And this is going to become a necessity financially for providers, as well as a safety necessity. We see survey numbers that show, you know, a third of patients don't feel safe going to the hospital Hmm. right now. Something like 40% would consider switching the provider they're seeing in order to have access to virtual care right now. And that number, that 40% number, is actually up from 2019 when it was just 29%. Well, It sort of seems like the advice to move quickly seems to be the theme of most of the advice that we're giving now when we're in the middle of a pandemic. So if you're talking to a leader that's got to implement telehealth, they've got to do it quickly. We've got these great examples of other institutions who have done that. How should a leader actually go about that kind of swift motion to implement telehealth? Well, the good news is, is that a lot of the regulatory barriers that made this difficult and even potentially unappealing to physicians and patients um, have gone away. The The popular example here is that providers can use apps. They can use FaceTime. They can use Skype. They can use Google Hangouts to do telehealth visits. Uh, Medicare will even let you bill for some visits done over the telephone. Hmm. So really, you know, they're really trying to leverage everyday technologies to connect patients with providers. Now, the visits will have to be documented. So that's another step in the workflow and all of that FaceTime stuff lives outside of the EHR. But whatever you're doing, it is very, very convenient now to stand up 
a way to connect virtually with patients in a way that has never existed before, whether that's a Band-Aid solution like Skype or a traditional platform that you've already bought. I think all of those are absolutely essential right now. I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell anybody not to do any of those things if that was what they needed to do to get it going. But the imperative on the end of that, where the rubber meets the road, you have to be able to answer the patient question, if I think I have COVID-19, what do you want me to do? So whatever your system is, it's got to be able to assess their condition, their symptoms. And then based on that, it has to be able to tell them exactly what you want them to do in absolutely clear terms for them to to move on and, and get the care that they need. Got it. All right. So we've talked about telehealth in the pre-pandemic world and what organizations are doing right now. Let's talk about the future. And I'm going to ask you to peer into your crystal ball for me. What's your prediction for how telehealth will be deployed post-pandemic? I'm going to cheat on that, Ray, and I'm going to answer, I'm going to give you two answers, sort of a glass half full, glass half empty perspective. The glass half full perspective is, as I mentioned before, so many more patients and clinicians are getting exposure to telehealth for the first time. And on the patient side, all of advisory boards, consumer research on virtual visits says that patients who do try a virtual visit are satisfied with the care and the interaction with the provider and that they're willing to use it in the future. So we're likely to see far more consumers demanding telehealth services. Think of it becoming table stakes for providers. That is, if you even want to be playing at all in patient engagement and retention, you're going to have to have a robust telehealth offering. And if providers can't offer that, patients are going to look elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So that's your positive spin. What's the glass half empty take? Well, the bad news is that all the things that I mentioned earlier that make it easy to adopt telehealth now and get connected with patients quickly are probably not going to stick around. The biggest barrier is still going to be reimbursement. Right now, only about 20% of states require payment parity for telehealth and in-person visits. And that's huge because reimbursement rates for telehealth visits tend to be 20 to 50% less than comparable in-person service rates. In 2019, nearly four out of five physicians said that reimbursement was the obstacle to providing telehealth. Hmm. Beyond that, there are all these waivers that are making telehealth more flexible. Um, those are likely to end too. So no more FaceTime or phone calls. Providers are going to have to have robust, secure platforms in place that will probably require some significant investment. We'll also probably see a return to restrictions on originating sites and whether or not patients have to have an existing relationship with a provider in order to get a telehealth visit. And, and, but wait, there's more. The giant private insurers, United, Humana, Aetna, the folks who are waiving copays for telehealth treatments right now might reinstitute them when this is all said and done. And we haven't even talked about access yet. Telehealth presents real, real issues of equity. We, we had to look this one up, but this is, this is some data that I think is very important to consider here. When we think about using telehealth as a way to expand the availability of care, according to the National Telecommunications Information Administration survey in 2018, vulnerable populations, so the elderly, 
they were 21% less likely to have internet access and almost 50% less likely to conduct video calls. So virtual visits are probably out of reach for a lot of them. The poor in general were 34% less likely to communicate with doctors online. We're not talking about virtual visits. We're just talking about using all of those online portals that health systems and providers have invested so much money in. And then demographic minorities are also likely to have less access to any of those options for, for receiving care. So John, I can see why you answered that my first question in, in two ways, because right, you listed them out. There are a lot of barriers to overcome to really having telehealth be something that's adopted widespread after the pandemic, despite its use case right now. And that's true. But I also want to point out that this is the first time that telehealth has been put to test at scale. We've always looked at digital tools with an eye towards, you know, what they could potentially do for us in the future. But they're already tremendously valuable right now. And with hospitals and health systems investing time and resources in standing up telehealth offerings, that's a very solid foundation for them to build on after the pandemic for the hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of patients who'll be using telehealth for the very first time. They may want and even expect to get these services in the future. And John, I'm curious, have you ever used telehealth? What do you think of it? I have not used telehealth, um, and that is largely because I am a care delayer, much to my <laughs> wife's dismay. Um, I, I pretend I prefer to I prefer to suffer rather than go to the doctor. Although I have to say that this has certainly changed my perspective on whether wandering around with a severe cough is the right idea. It certainly won't be socially acceptable going forward. So I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to revisit that. The interesting thing that I've seen though on, you know, we mentioned about spending a little too much time on Twitter. I'm, I do the same thing on LinkedIn and I'm noticing across these social channels, people talking about telehealth for the first time in a way that I've never seen it happen. And so far I have not seen anyone comment on a first virtual visit in a way that wasn't positive. Hmm. Lots of comments about, I hope that this is the way primary care happens from now on. It was very easy. It was so convenient. I don't want to go and park and wait and sit and have to drive. Certainly the convenience factor here is, is going to really solve, if you will, the consumer demand part of this. I think what we'll have to get over is the supply angle. Will physicians be compensated appropriately for doing this kind of work? Will we be able to build the infrastructure that allows people to do virtual visits in the convenient kind of way that they want? As a fellow person who also delays care, I used telehealth services for the first time at the beginning of this month for exactly these purposes, right? Had a cough, was scared. My need in the moment was I, I need peace of mind. And it was, gosh, 9 p.m., I think, on a, on a Sunday and got to get on a virtual visit and uh, at least had clear next steps, kind of fears were tamped down. And, and it's something that I myself as a consumer that typically delays care is, is going to be thinking about telehealth as my, my, my first choice next time. And one other angle on this, one of my friends is pregnant and obviously her care can't be delayed. The baby is going to come when the baby comes. She reached out to her 
provider who was unwilling to do a virtual visit. And her words cannot be repeated on the podcast. <laughs> but I think the the idea that seeing the availability of this and how easy it is for other people really casts providers who don't offer this service in a very bad light. That's right. And it's hard because when we talk about the competitive landscape in healthcare, we typically are actually talking about things that are right in your backyard, right? Think about your community. What are the traditional health systems, the physician groups, and then those third parties, the CVSs, the Walgreens of the world. But when we talk about telehealth, we're actually not talking about competition in your community. The competition can be national. It can be global, right? What's going to happen if you, say, want to see a dermatologist and you can get connected to Laguna Beach dermatology and that's where you're going to choose to get your care? One of the interesting technology things that's on the horizon for us is the 5G network will be one of the game changers for telehealth. The low latency, which means that the, the commands and the responses are go so much faster. The bandwidth, the ability to send files of exceedingly high resolution and very big size at very fast rates means that we'll be able to connect to providers in ways that we never have before. Your example was dermatology. You know, certainly with high resolution images being able to transmit in real time, you absolutely could see a dermatologist on the other side of the country or maybe even on the other side of the world. That's one of the things that, that we need to be mindful of as, as we move through here. It's not just what COVID is doing to us as consumers and as the healthcare industry. There are also other factors out there that are going to make this even more important moving forward. And as those things happen, I, I'm sure we're going to be coming back to you for more questions, more answers when it comes to technology and telehealth. I feel like you and I could talk about this all day. I'm going to propose that next time it happens over a couple of cocktails. But before I let you get back to your day, there is one final question that I want to ask you. And it's one that I'm asking all of my guests here at Radio Advisory as a way to kind of close our time. So regarding telehealth, what is the one thing, the one piece of advice, the one focus area that you would tell executives to pinpoint and put all of their attention to this week? That's a great question, Ray. And on telehealth, here's here's what I want you to be thinking about this week. And I'm I'm begging, please don't ask what should our telehealth strategy be. Just just don't do it. This week, I want you to think about the strategy you already have. Now, maybe you're actively revising that strategy in light of COVID nineteen. Totally fair. But either way, think about how you can integrate telehealth into your strategy to help meet the objectives you already have. Telehealth cannot just be a side hustle. It can't be a nice to have anymore. It is an essential part of care delivery. You, you can't see me because we're connecting through the podcast, but I am, I'm virtually like cheering and screaming that that is the absolute best advice that you could be giving to executives right now. Couldn't agree more. Thanks, Ray. Well, John, uh, thanks so much for joining us, and we will talk to you next time. My pleasure. You can find more of our research on telehealth linked in the episode's show notes. 
All right, I know that you are all on the edge of your seat to hear my answer. It's really hard to follow John, who who hit the, the nail on the head there. But as I'm thinking about what executives should be focused on this week, I don't have so much a thing for executives to do as much as I have general guidance and advice. It's really, really important right now for leaders to shift their mindset. If you are sitting there wishing for things to go back to the way they were, you've already lost. Going back to baseline, going back to a world in which telehealth visits are something that you measure in the dozens and maybe the hundreds, that's not only going to make you a weaker organization in the future, but really you've just missed this tremendous opportunity for transformation. So I want to end actually where we started. Back to that tweet, that multiple choice question about what's going to transform your organization, because really it got it right. If you're looking for something to help lead transformation now, let this moment be it.